Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Have you discussed it with anyone? Would you talk to him? Be sure about your answers. I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no. Yes or no? Sir, please answer the question. I'll ask again. I asked the question just a minute ago. I'm sorry you forgot. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh... Hey, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. I will repeat it. I will. Had he been cleared. I would like to speak on the issue of race. I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public school. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. I will also immediately put in place a meaningful process for reviewing the cases for asylum. I will release children from cages. I will get rid of the private detention centers. Uh, Attorney General Barr, has the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? Yes or no? Yes or no, please. Seems you'd remember something like that and be able to tell us. So you're not denying that you've spoken with Well, I, I said I don't remember anything like that. Okay, I'll move on. Okay. Clearly you're not going to answer the question. Kilimnik was born on April 27, 1970, in Dnepropetrovsk Oblast, then of the Soviet Union, and attended the Military Institute of the Ministry of Defense from 1987 until 1992. Sam Patton, a business partner to Kilimnik, stated that Kilimnik told him that he was a translator in the Russian army for seven years and that he later worked in the Russian armament industry selling arms and military equipment. U.S. government visa records reveal that Kilimnik obtained a visa to travel to the United States with a Russian diplomatic passport in 1997. Kilimnik worked for the International Republican Institute's IRI Moscow office, where he did translation work and general office management from 1998 to 2005. While another official recalled the incident differently, one former associate of Kilimnik's at Tri told the FBI that Kilimnik was fired from his post because his links to Russian intelligence were too strong. The same individual stated that it was well known at IRI that Kilimnik had links to the Russian government. Jonathan Hawker, a British national who was a public relations consultant at FTI Consulting, worked with DMI on a public relations campaign for Yanukovych. After Hawker's work for DMI ended, Kilimnik contacted Hawker about working for a Russian government entity on a public relations project that would promote, in Western and Ukrainian media, Russia's position on its 2014 invasion of Crimea. Gates suspected that Kilimnik was a spy, a view that he shared with Manafort, Hawker, and Alexander van der Zwan, an attorney who had worked with DMI on a report for the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. B. Contacts during Paul Manafort's time with the Trump campaign. Paul Manafort joins the campaign. Manafort served on the Trump campaign from late March to August 19, 2016. On March 29, 2016, the campaign announced that Manafort would serve as the campaign's convention manager. 
On May 19, 2016, Manafort was promoted to campaign chairman and chief strategist, and Gates, who had been assisting Manafort on the campaign, was appointed deputy campaign chairman. Thomas Barrick and Roger Stone both recommended Manafort to candidate Trump. In early 2016, at Manafort's request, Barrick suggested to Trump that Manafort join the campaign to manage the Republican convention. Stone had worked with Manafort from approximately 1980 until the mid-L990s through various consulting and lobbying firms. Manafort met Trump in 1982 when Trump hired the Black, Manafort, Stone and Kelly lobbying firm. Over the years, Manafort saw Trump at political and social events in New York City and at Stone's wedding, and Trump requested VIP status at the 1988 and 1996 Republican conventions worked by Manafort. According to Gates, in March 2016, Manafort traveled to Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida to meet with Trump. Trump hired him at that time. Manafort agreed to work on the campaign without pay. Manafort had no meaningful income at this point in time, but resuscitating his domestic political campaign career could be financially beneficial in the future. Gates reported that Manafort intended, if Trump won the presidency, to remain outside the administration and monetize his relationship with the administration. Paul Manafort's campaign period contacts. Immediately upon joining the campaign, Manafort directed Gates to prepare for his review separate memoranda addressed to Deripaska, Akhmedov, Serhii Lyavochkin, and Boris Kolesnikov, the last three being Ukrainian oligarchs who were senior opposition bloc officials. The memoranda described Manafort's appointment to the Trump campaign and indicated his willingness to consult on Ukrainian politics in the future. On March 30, 2016, Gates emailed the memoranda and a press release announcing Manafort's appointment to Kilimnik for translation and dissemination. Manafort later followed up with Kilimnik to ensure his messages had been delivered, emailing on April 11, 2016 to ask whether Kilimnik had shown our friends the media coverage of his new role. Kilimnik replied, absolutely. Every article. Manafort further asked, how do we use to get whole? Has OVD Oleg Vladimirovich Deripaska operation seen? Kilimnik wrote back the same day, Yes, I have been sending everything to Viktor Boyarkin, Deripaska's deputy, who has been forwarding the coverage directly to OVD. Gates reported that Manafort said that being hired on the campaign would be good for business and increase the likelihood that Manafort would be paid the approximately $2 million he was owed for previous political consulting work in Ukraine. Gates also explained to the office that Manafort thought his role on the campaign could help confirm that Deripaska had dropped the Pericles lawsuit, and that Gates believed Manafort sent polling data to Deripaska as discussed further below so that Deripaska would not move forward with his lawsuit against Manafort. Gates further stated that Deripaska wanted a visa to the United States, that Deripaska could believe that having Manafort in a position inside the campaign or administration might be helpful to Deripaska, and that Manafort's relationship with Trump could help Deripaska in other ways as well. Gates stated, however, that Manafort never told him anything specific about what, if anything, Manafort might be offering Deripaska. Gates also reported that Manafort instructed him in April 2016 or early May 2016 to send Kilimnik campaign internal polling data and other updates so that Kilimnik, in turn, could share it with Ukrainian Ali Archs. 
Gates understood that the information would also be shared with Deripaska. Gates reported to the office that he did not know why Manafort wanted him to send polling information, but Gates thought it was a way to showcase Manafort's work, and Manafort wanted to open doors to jobs after the Trump campaign ended. Gates said that Manafort's instruction included sending internal polling data prepared for the Trump campaign by pollster Tony Fabrizio. Fabrizio had worked with Manafort for years and was brought into the campaign by Manafort. Gates stated that, in accordance with Manafort's instruction, he periodically sent Kilimnik polling data via WhatsApp. Gates then deleted the communications on a daily basis. Gates further told the office that, after Manafort left the campaign in mid-August, Gates sent Kilimnik polling data less frequently and that the data he sent was more publicly available information and less internal data. The office also obtained contemporaneous emails that shed light on the purpose of the communications with Deripaska and that are consistent with Gates's account. For example, in response to a July 7, 2006, email from a Ukrainian reporter about Manafort's failed Deripaska-backed investment, Manafort asked Kilimnik whether there had been any movement on this issue with our friend. Gates stated that our friend likely referred to Deripaska, and Manafort told the office that the issue and our biggest interest, as stated below was a solution to the Deripaska-Pericles issue. Kilimnik replied. I am carefully optimistic on the question of our biggest interest. Our friend Boyarkin said there is lately significantly more attention to the campaign in his boss's Deripaska's mind, and he will be most likely looking for ways to reach out to you pretty soon, understanding all the time sensitivity. I am more than sure that it will be resolved and we will get back to the original relationship with V's boss Deripaska. Eight minutes later, Manafort replied that Kilimnik should tell Boyarkin's boss, a reference to Deripaska, that if he needs private briefings we can accommodate. Manafort has alleged to the office that he was willing to brief Deripaska only on public campaign matters and gave an example, why Trump selected Mike Pence as the vice presidential running mate. Manafort said he never gave Deripaska a briefing. Manafort noted that if Trump won, Deripaska would want to use Manafort to advance whatever interests Deripaska had in the United States and elsewhere. E. Paul Manafort's two campaign period meetings with Konstantin Kilimnik in the United States. This free audio is provided by MullerReportAudioBook.com. Manafort twice met with Kilimnik in person during the campaign period once in May and again in August 2016. The first meeting took place on May 7, 2016, in New York City. In the days leading to the meeting, Kilimnik had been working to gather information about the political situation in Ukraine. That included information gleaned from a trip that former Party of Regions official Yuri Boyko had recently taken to Moscow a trip that likely included meetings between Boyko and high-ranking Russian officials. Kilimnik then traveled to Washington, D.C. on or about May 5, 2016. While in Washington, Kilimnik had pre-arranged meetings with State Department employees. Late on the evening of May 6, Gates arranged for Kilimnik to take a 3 a.m. train to meet Manafort in New York for breakfast on May 7. According to Manafort, during the meeting, he and Kilimnik talked about events in Ukraine, and Manafort briefed Kilimnik on the Trump campaign, expecting Kilimnik to pass the information back to individuals in Ukraine and elsewhere. Manafort stated that opposition bloc members recognized Manafort's position on the campaign was an opportunity, but Kilimnik did not ask for anything. 
Kilimnik spoke about a plan of boycott to boost election participation in the eastern zone of Ukraine, which was the base for the opposition bloc. Kilimnik returned to Washington, D.C. right after the meeting with Manafort. Manafort met with Kilimnik a second time at the Grand Havana Club in New York City on the evening of August 2, 2016. The events leading to the meeting are as follows. On July 28, 2016, Kilimnik flew from Kiev to Moscow. The next day, Kilimnik wrote to Manafort requesting that they meet, using coded language about a conversation he had that day. In an email with a subject line black caviar, Kilimnik wrote, I met today with the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar several years ago. We spent about five hours talking about his story, and I have several important messages from him to you. He asked me to go and brief you on our conversation. I said I have to run it by you first, but in principle I am prepared to do it. It has to do about the future of his country, and is quite interesting. Manafort identified the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar as Yanukovych. He explained that, in 2010, he and Yanukovych had lunch to celebrate the recent presidential election. Yanukovych gave Manafort a large jar of black caviar that was worth approximately $30,000 to $40,000. Manafort's identification of Yanukovych as the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar is consistent with Kilimnik being in Moscow where Yanukovych resided when Kilimnik wrote I met today with Redacted. A December 2016 email in which Kilimnik referred to Yanukovych as BG, Manafort replied to Kilimnik's July 29 email, Tuesday August 2 is best. Tuesday or weds in NYC. Three days later, on July 31, 2016, Kilimnik flew back to Kiev from Moscow, and on that same day, wrote to Manafort that he needed about two hours for their meeting because it is a long caviar story to tell. Kilimnik wrote that he would arrive at JFK on August 2 at 7.30 p.m. And he and Manafort agreed to a late dinner that night. Documentary evidence including flight, phone, and hotel records, and the timing off-text messages exchanged confirms the dinner took place as planned on August 2. As to the contents of the meeting itself, the accounts of Manafort and Gates who arrived late to the dinner differ in certain respects. But their versions of events, when assessed alongside available documentary evidence and what Kilimnik told business associate Sam Patton, indicate that at least three principal topics were discussed. First, Manafort and Kilimnik discussed a plan to resolve the ongoing political problems in Ukraine by creating an autonomous republic in its more industrialized eastern region of Donbass and having Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president ousted in 2014, elected to head that republic. That plan, Manafort later acknowledged, constituted a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Manafort initially said that, if he had not cut off the discussion, Kilimnik woulda have asked Manafort in the August 2 meeting to convince Trump to come out in favor of the peace plan, and Yanukovych would have expected Manafort to use his connections in Europe and Ukraine to support the plan. Manafort also initially told the office that he had said to Kilimnika that the plan was crazy, that the discussion ended, and that he did not recall Kilimnik asking Manafort to reconsider after their August 2 meeting. Manafort said that he reacted negatively to Yanukovych sending years later an urgent request when Yanukovych needed him. When confronted with an email written by Kilimnik Ona or about December 8, 2016, however, Manafort acknowledged Kilimnik raised the peace plan again in that email. 
Manafort ultimately acknowledged Ed Kilimnik also raised the peace plan in a January 2017 meetings with Manafort. Second, Manafort briefed Kilimnik on the state of the Trump campaign and Manafort's plan to win the election. That briefing encompassed the campaign's messaging and its internal polling data. According to Gates, it also included discussion of battleground states, which Manafort identified as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Manafort did know to refer ex-licit to battle round states in his telling of the August 2 discussion, Prime Minister. The plan emphasized that Yanukovych would be an ideal candidate to bring peace to the region as Prime Minister of the Republic, and facilitate the reintegration of the redacted with the support of the U.S. and Russian presidents. As noted above, according to redacted the written documentation describing the plan, for the plan to work, both U.S. and Russian support were necessary. C. Third, according to Gates and what Kilimnik told Patton, Manafort and Kilimnik discussed two sets of financial disputes related to Manafort's previous work in the region. Those consisted of the unresolved Deripaska lawsuit and the funds that the opposition bloc owed to Manafort for his political consulting work and how Manafort might be able to obtain payment. After the meeting, Gates and Manafort both stated that they left separately from Kilimnik because they knew the media was tracking Manafort and wanted to avoid media reporting on his connections to Kilimnik. Post-resignation activities Manafort resigned from the Trump campaign in mid-August 2016, approximately two weeks after his second meeting with Kilimnik, amidst negative media reporting about his political consulting work for the pro-Russian party of regions in Ukraine. Despite his resignation, Manafort continued to offer advice to various campaign officials through the November election. Manafort told Gates that he still spoke with Kushner, Bannon, and candidate Trump, and some of those post-resignation contacts are documented in emails. For example, on October 21, 2016, Manafort sent Kushner an email and attached a strategy memorandum proposing that the campaign make the case against Clinton as the failed and corrupt champion of the establishment and that WikiLeaks provides the Trump campaign the ability to make the case in a very credible way, by using the words of Clinton, its campaign officials and DNC members. Later, in a November 5, 2016 email to Kushner entitled Securing the Victory, Manafort stated that he was really feeling good about our prospects on Tuesday and focusing on preserving the victory, and that he was concerned the Clinton campaign would respond to a loss by moving immediately to discredit the Trump victory and claim voter fraud and cyber fraud, including the claim that the Russians have hacked into the voting machines and tampered with the results. Trump was elected president on November 8, 2016. Manafort told the office that, in the wake of Trump's victory, he was not interested in an administration job. Manafort instead preferred to stay on the outside, and monetize his campaign position to generate business given his familiarity and relationship with Trump and the incoming administration. Manafort appeared to follow that plan, as he traveled to the Middle East, Cuba, South Korea, Japan, and China and was paid to explain what a Trump presidency would entie. Manafort's activities in early 2017 included meetings relating to Ukraine and Russia. The first meeting, which took place in Madrid, Spain in January 2017, was with Jorge Oganov. Oganov, who had previously worked at the Russian embassy in the United States, was a senior executive at a Deripaska company and was believed to report directly to Deripaska. Manafort initially denied attending the meeting. When he later acknowledged it, he claimed that the meeting had been arranged by his lawyers and concerned only the Pericles lawsuit. 
Other evidence, however, provides reason to doubt Manafort's statement that the sole topic of the meeting was the Pericles lawsuit. In particular, text messages to Manafort from a number associated with Kilimnik suggest that Kilimnik and Boyarkin not Manayort's counsel had arranged the meeting between Manafort and Oganov. Kilimnik's message states that the meeting was supposed to be not about money or Pericles but instead about recreating the old friendship ostensibly between Manafort and Dara. Audio file 5 of the Mueller report. Russian contacts part 3. Post-election and transition period contacts. Trump was elected president on November 8, 2016. Beginning immediately after the election, individuals connected to the Russian government started contacting officials on the Trump campaign and transition team through multiple channels sometimes through Russian Ambassador Kislak and at other times through individuals who sought reliable contacts through U.S. persons not formally tied to the campaign or transition team. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The investigation did not establish that these efforts reflected or constituted coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in its election interference activities. 1. Immediate post-election activity. As soon as news broke that Trump had been elected president, Russian government officials and prominent Russian businessmen began trying to make inroads into the new administration. They appeared not to have pre-existing contacts and struggled to connect with senior officials around the president-elect. As explained below, those efforts entailed both official contact through the Russian embassy in the United States and outreaches sanctioned at high levels of the Russian government through business rather than political contacts. A. Outreach from the Russian government. At approximately 3 a.m. on election night, Trump campaign press secretary Hope Hicks received a telephone call on her personal cell phone from a person who sounded foreign but was calling from a number with a D.C. area code. Although Hicks had a hard time understanding the person, she could make out the words Putin call. Hicks told the caller to send her an email. The following morning, on November 9, 2016, Sergei Kuznetsov, an official at the Russian embassy to the United States, emailed Hicks from his Gmail address with the subject line, message from Putin. Attached to the email was a message from Putin, in both English and Russian, which Kuznetsov asked Hicks to convey to the president-elect. In the message, Putin offered his congratulations to Trump for his electoral victory, stating he looked forward to working with Trump on leading Russian-American relations out of crisis. Hicks forwarded the email to Kushner, asking, can you look into this? Don't want to get duped but don't want to blow off Putin, degree Kushner stated in congressional testimony that he believed that it would be possible to verify the authenticity of the forwarded email through the Russian ambassador, whom Kushner had previously met in April 2016. Unable to recall the Russian ambassador's name, Kushner emailed Dmitry Symes of CNI, whom he had consulted previously about Russia, see Volume 1, Section IV, A4, Supra, and asked, what is the name of Russian ambassador Kushner forwarded Symes's response which identified Kislak by name to Hicks. After checking with Kushner to see what he had learned, Hicks conveyed Putin's letter to transition officials. Five days later, on November 14, 2016, Trump and Putin spoke by phone in the presence of transition team members, including incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. B. High-level encouragement of contacts through alternative channels. As Russian officials in the United States reached out to the president-elect and his team, a number of Russian individuals working in the private sector began their own efforts to make contact. 
Petr Avayan, a Russian national who heads Alpha Bank, Russia's largest commercial bank, described to the office interactions with Putin during this time period that might account for the tolerance of Russian activity. Avayan told the office that he is one of approximately 50 wealthy Russian businessmen who regularly meet with Putin in the Kremlin. These 50 men are often referred to as oligarchs. Avayan told the office that he met on a quarterly basis with Putin, including in the fourth quarter Q4 of 2016, shortly after the U.S. presidential election. Avayan said that he took these meetings seriously and understood that any suggestions or critiques that Putin made during these meetings were implicit directives, and that there would be consequences for Avayan if he did not follow through. As was typical, the 2016 Q4 meeting with Putin was preceded by a preparatory meeting with Putin's chief of staff, Anton Vaino. According to Avayan, at his Q4 2016 one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin, Putin raised the prospect that the United States would impose additional sanctions on Russian interests, including sanctions against Avayan and or Alpha Bank. Putin suggested that Avayan needed to take steps to protect himself and Alpha Bank. Avayan also testified that Putin spoke of the difficulty faced by the Russian government in getting in touch with the incoming Trump administration. According to Avayan, Putin indicated that he did not know with whom formally to speak and generally did not know the people around the president-elect. Avayan told Putin he would take steps to protect himself and the Alpha Bank shareholders from potential sanctions, and one of those steps would be to try to reach out to the incoming administration to establish a line of communication. Avayan described Putin responding with skepticism about Avayan's prospect for success. According to Avayan, although Putin did not expressly direct him to reach out to the Trump transition team, Avayan understood that Putin expected him to try to respond to the concerns he had raised. Avayan's efforts are described in Volume 1, Section IV. Kirill Dmitriev's transition-era outreach to the incoming administration. Avayan's description of his interactions with Putin is consistent with the behavior of Kirill Dmitriev, a Russian national who heads Russia's sovereign wealth fund and is closely connected to Putin. Dmitriev undertook efforts to meet members of the incoming Trump administration in the months after the election. Dmitriev asked a close business associate who worked for the United Arab Emirates UAE Royal Court, George Nader, to introduce him to Trump transition officials, and Nader eventually arranged a meeting in the Seychelles between Dmitriev and Eric Prince, a Trump campaign supporter and an associate of Steve Bannon. In addition, the UAE Nationale Security Advisor introduced Dmitriev to a hedge fund manager and friend of Jared Kushner, Rick Gerson, in late November 2016. In December 2016 and January 2017, Dmitriev and Gerson worked on a proposal for reconciliation between the United States and Russia, which Dmitriev implied he cleared through Putin. Gerson provided that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kushner later gave copies to Bannon and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. A. Background Dmitriev is a Russian national who was appointed CEO of Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Russian Direct Investment Fund RDIF, when it was founded in 2011. Dmitriev reported a directly to Putin and frequently referred to Putin as his boss. RDIF has co-invested in various projects with UAE Sovereign Wealth Funds. Dmitriev regularly interacted with Nader, a senior advisor to UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Crown Prince Mohammed, in connection with RDIF's dealings with the UAE.
Putin wanted Dmitriev to be in charge of both the financial and the political relationship between Russia and the Gulf states, in part because Dmitriev had been educated in the West and spoke English fluently. Nader considered Dmitriev to be Putin's interlocutor in the Gulf region and would relay Dmitriev's views directly to Crown Prince Mohammed. Nader developed contacts with both U.S. presidential campaigns during the 2016 election, and kept Dmitriev abreast of his efforts to do so. According to Nader, Dmitriev said that his and the government of Russia's preference was for candidate Trump to win and asked Nader to assist him in meeting members of the Trump cam in. Nader did not introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the Trump campaign before the election. Eric Prince is a businessman who had relationships with various individuals associated with the Trump campaign, including Steve Bannon, Donald Trump Jr., and Roger Stone. Prince did not have a formal role in the campaign, although he offered to host a fundraiser for Trump and sent unsolicited policy papers on issues such as foreign policy, trade, and Russian election interference to Bannon. After the election, Prince frequently visited transition offices at Trump Tower, primarily to meet with Bannon but on occasion to meet Michael Flynn and others. Prince and Bannon would discuss, inter alia, foreign policy issues and Prince's recommendations regarding who should be appointed to fill key national positions. Although redacted affiliated with the transition, Nader received assurances that the incoming administration considered Prince a trusted associate. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something, you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, they will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Ask not yes, we can. what your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. I, poor little children. Yes, we can. to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. How much you take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. He wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Public Access Public America. Access. History in the making. History. Making history in the making. In the making.